All right, so welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week is part two of our conversation with Pastor Alicia Johnston regarding her book, The Bible and LGBTQ Adventist. Right now, it is currently available through the Kickstarter campaign, which is ending very shortly, so make sure you get your copy before it ends. You can find a link in the description below. So I just want to start off saying thank you to everyone who has been writing in and sharing their feedback to the episode. Just to be clear, this is not an exhaustive theology. There are tons of books regarding queer theology, some of which we will list at the end of the episode. So make sure that you stay tuned. So this episode, just to be clear, is just simply getting the conversation started, which I see it has already done effectively. And I appreciate your feedback. You guys have been very engaged and it is cool to see you guys chiming in. So all of my hopes are is for this conversation is to make room for people who might approach the Bible differently and to not question their uh, sincerity and their walk with Jesus, as well as to be a little bit humble in how we approach issues that we might not identify with, right? Um, It's hard for anybody to tell me what it means to be a woman. And I think we should also employ that type of respect when we're walking into the queer community, especially if it's not something that you identify with. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at Advent Next. You can follow our guest today, Pastor Alicia Johnston, at Pastor Alicia Johnston, and me, Kendra Arsenal, with an X. But right now, this is Advent Next. Exactly, exactly. And I think those are just really cool, just practical tips of what it means to create a safe space. And I guess I I want to speak to probably the narrative that many churches have heard and maybe kind of are inundated in. Um, I think, for example, this, and I'm going to clarify some terms for you guys who are listening, you know, the, like the side B um, debate. Uh, side A, side B, side X. Uh, these are positions, theological positions on uh, queerness in our church, right? And I think there have been some evolution over uh, the decades where I think in the beginning or, or like maybe in like, not just the beginning, but like oh, some of our first introductions to dealing with queer members is, um, you know, conversion therapy. And I think that's very prominent in our church. We see, um, you know, people know about coming out ministries and people who have, you know, testimonies. And and I'm not here to debate the legitimacy of those testimonies or, or call them false in any way. But like, it's a narrative to say that this is something about me that I've overcome and that I have, I have changed and I am moving, like I'm no longer, no longer gay. I'm no longer a lesbian. Um, and I am marrying uh, someone of the opposite sex. And like that becomes a standard for, you know, what LGBT people should become in our church. And I just want to kind of get your opinion on like, is that the standard we should uphold? Now, before we get into that, like there has been a little bit of progress in on the books, maybe not in practicality about, you know, okay, someone might, instead of, having to give up a queer identity, they can say, well, I am gay, but I'm celibate. And that's what side B is, right? That they're going to say like, I, I am gay, but I want to continue to like, you know, I believe that heterosexual marriage is the only biblical marriage. And so I'm going to remain celibate for the rest of my life. And there are a number of queer, openly queer people who have made that position. And I think that there's some comfortability in the church with that. But those are the only options that we have given or the narrative that we have given to queer people, which is like either you need to change or you need to be alone for the rest of your life. But an open Mm -hmm. expression of your sexuality in the way that would make you happy will not be accepted. Um, So maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, um, where we are right now with those theologies and maybe like a little bit of your take on it. Like, what are your thoughts on on converting uh 
being an ex-gay and, or just remaining celibate for the rest of your life. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is helpful about coming out ministries is they don't tell people they need to get married to some of the opposite sex. Um, thank God, you know, they're not, they're not trying to coerce gay people into marrying someone of the opposite sex. And, um, that's just a difficult situation. They're certainly not saying don't do it. They're, they're kind of, they still, they still do kind of talk about it as like, you know, maybe God will let work this out for you and that would be great. But, um, but they're not, I, I don't, I haven't gotten that vibe from them at all. And, and most of them um, are not married to someone of the opposite sex or in what we would call a mixed orientation marriage. Um, so, so that's a good thing, but let me go back a little bit and I'll just hit it. I'll just hit the high, highlights. Um, there's a lot more depth in this, but let me go back a little bit to explain where ex-gay therapy even came from. So it actually started with Sigmund Freud, of all people, who taught psychosexual um, theories about human development and psychological development, like Oedipus complex. And you've heard about all of that, that um, the sexual dynamics between a child and their parents is something that impacts them for their whole life, um, which I mean, come on. Even that phrase, the sexual dynamics between a child and their parents is problematic to begin with, right? Yeah. Like Freud was deeply disturbed and his theories are really bad, <laughs> I think, you know, in retrospect, um, as, as we look back now, and um, a lot of people also recognize that a lot of the people he counseled were actually victims of sexual abuse at the hands of their fathers. So it explains a lot of his theories. Mm. Um, anyway. I'm always tempted to go down that <laughs> too much, but so it's, it started with Sigmund Freud and his ideas about psychosexual development, which founded the field of psychoanalysis, as you know, if you remember from a psych 101 class. So psychoanalysts, you know, the, the typical sitting on the, sitting on the couch and just free associating everything you think while the psychoanalyst kind of writes it down, that, that, that kind of field of psychoanalysis was dominant for, for a long time for any kind of mental health, um, mental health related anything until about the sixties. Um, it was totally dominant and it was mostly psychiatrists and, uh, practicing psychoanalysis. Um, and they began to develop psychosexual theories about how people became gay and the one of the, the the dominant theory was that you have um, a disengaged father and an overbearing mother, which of course never happens in traditional American homes. <laughs> it's just like a setup, right? Yeah. Um, so you have a you have a distant father and an overbearing mother, and that it creates this kind of disturbance in your own gender identity where you don't really feel comfortable with, with being male. And so, because all these things began with men, of course. So you don't really feel comfortable with being male. And so you seek out a male sexual partner as a way to kind of soothe your own discomfort with your own gender and your own desire to embody your own gender. Mm -hmm. So that was the, that was the theory. Very much parent blaming and shaming, which is awful and still exists today, you know, that it's like the parents' fault that their kid is gay and they've just messed them up or something like that. And just really kind of harmful for everybody. But as the field of psychoanalysis was losing faith in this theory, it got picked up by um, Elizabeth Moberly, Moberly, Moberly and uh, Joseph Nicolasi picked this up and kind of baptized it into Christian terms, just really as psychoanalysis was kind of starting to move away from it and the whole field of psychology. And you had more than psychoanalysis available as well. You have um, humanistic psychology and cognitive behavioral psychology is beginning and people are just changed. They're not using this psychosexual approach anymore to therapy in general, because it just, it can't be, there's no evidence that it's true at all, basically. Mm. So they're kind of abandoning now the whole approach to human psychology, but Christians pick it up and baptize it and add a God element to it of, you know, prayer and trusting God and all of that and say, well, once we add this, 
it's going to work. And so they, they bring those theories, but they're the same theories. They bring them in um, in the late 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and they just thrive. They just, they just thrive because, Christ, you know, as um, queer people are becoming more visible in society, church feels a need to respond. And so here's our response. Like, oh, these, they're broken and they need to be healed. And once they're healed and they trust God and God heals their trauma and those, those family of origin experiences, and then they'll be able to um, be normal mm. essentially. Right. <laughs> and it, it was, a, it, it wasn't a diabolical thing. It was an attempt to be compassionate and helpful and respond to a real need. And it fit with the theological understanding and there were also there was also a dark side of it of the emergence of the religious right and of um just real like the culture the, the construction and invention of the cultural wars and the ability that many found that that this framing had to raise a lot of money and so some people like pat robertson just like ran wild with this stuff you know and raised millions and millions of dollars um, from people by making them afraid of LGBTQ people. So all these things are going on. And that that basically coalesced into an organization called Exodus International that became the umbrella organization for all of these theories. There's a really popular book in the 90s called Coming Out of Homosexuality. Um, I've got it on my shelf. That was that was kind of expounding these, like popularizing these ideas. Mm. And, you know, people in Exodus International were just like reading these books and engaging with these ideas. They were going to conversion therapy. This is what it became known as conversion therapy or change therapy. They were going to conversion therapy, reading these books, inpatient. They were going to inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment. It was, I mean, it was a huge umbrella organization, Exodus International. They had a conference that, you know, at least hundreds of people would come to and they were international they had the backing of focus on the family and the publicity and the money that came along with that it was just it was rolling you know yeah. um the problem was it became increasingly evident that they were making promises they were unable to fulfill mm. and the community that was engaging with this therapy was realizing that you know the change that was promised wasn't happening and mm. they weren't really changing much at all and that eventually led to um alan chambers who was the president of exodus international at the time closing in exodus international completely and saying that we just have to acknowledge that in 99.9% of cases, sexual orientation is not changing. People, people are not actually changing. Um, these, these shifts aren't working. Basically the same thing that the, that the psychoanalytic community had come to realize now was being acknowledged by Exodus International. Mm. And so they closed their doors. Of course, some people continue to do it even today including Bethel Church has this big new kind of revival of conversion therapy that they're doing and the ex-gay movement. But it, Exodus International was plagued from the beginning with scandals. Some of the main leaders, you know, running off with one another, saying, saying that, they're, that they're changed and they're not really right. homosexual and then running off with one another. Um, there's also like very tricky uses of language, you know, like... Um, they would come up to saying that they'd changed their orientation, but they wouldn't quite say it. They might say things that sound like they've changed their orientation. You know, God has saved me from homosexuality or rescued me out of homosexuality. Most lay people who would hear that would think, oh, that person's been made straight. But that's not actually what they mean by that. <laughs> so lots of lots of kind of sleight of hand types of types of statements that really mislead people. You know, one of their slogans was change is possible. And that has a pretty clear implication for most people of what that means. But they, then they'd be like, well, no, it just, it just means you could not necessarily become straight, but you know, you could kind of leave homosexuality and not be homosexual anymore. Mm. And it's hard 
for me even now to wrap my head around what exactly that means um right to not be homosexual anymore if you're still attracted to the same gender (laughs) you know um is it all this effort is just going into like not having sex uh, is it that hard that you have to like orient your entire, like what's happening here? Yeah. Um, anyways, so that was kind of what happened and coming to, to our church specifically, uh, the Adventist church was very involved with Colin Cook, who was really involved at the beginning of Exodus International as well before the scandal. So the Adventist church had a part at the beginning and the Adventist church now has, um, it's not a official church organization and not not all levels of the administration support it by any means but um coming out ministry is uh adventist ministry they speak in adventist churches around the world and they have a lot of financial backing they say very often hey we're just telling our stories this is just our stories we're not doing any you know that's what we're doing and we should have the right to do that and yeah they should have the right to do that all LGBTQ people in the church, in fact, should have the right to do that, not just them. But um, if you actually listen to them, and I've listened to many, many, many hours of, of what they have to say, just, I mean, just listen, that's not what they're doing. They're not only telling their stories. Um, they are telling their stories through a lens that very much incorporates the psychosexual theories that first came from Freud and from psychoanalysis about the family dynamics and often abuse being involved that makes a person um, gay. Mm. So they, they very much talk about their own pasts in that sense, that those early family dynamics is why they are, why they are gay, which, um, you know, for many of us who have not had those kinds of experiences, um, kind of recognize that that's stigmatizing in and of itself, that the, the reason you are the way you are is because of being abused and because of trauma right. and addiction and things like that. And then it kind of and, perpetuates this kind of gay predatory narrative, you know, because there's the belief that, oh, if you've been abused, you're going to abuse others. And I think that mm-hmm. that just, it perpetuates this, this predatory mentality of what it means to be homosexual. Absolutely, which is, a, which is certainly a part of the narrative. Mm. and um yeah i mean i've i've listened to some of some of those folks basically saying um yeah you know people in the gay community they'll tell you that they're with their husband and that they're monogamous but i was sleeping with their husband you know like they literally would say things like that and they'll 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 tell you as saying that they're experts and they're telling you what the LGBTQ community is like. Mm -hmm. Um, And those pictures that they give are not at all flattering. And they, they quote, um, they quote research that is not very highly respected from the Heritage Foundation, which is a politically motivated think tank. Mm -hmm. Um, And they really fail to nuance a lot of the realities, which is that, you know, people who get rejected from their families and kicked out of their homes and and told that they're shameful, awful people are probably going to engage in some behaviors that aren't great. Anybody would. Um, And they, but they, but they take some of those behaviors and they use those to say, well, this is just inherent in what it means to be gay. And this is just what the LGBT community is like. And it's, it's deeply stigmatizing. Um, they also don't acknowledge the fact that as society has become accepting, those behaviors have reduced and mm. become less and less and less, um, which is kind of the opposite of what you would predict, you know, based on the theological posi- position that they're taking. Mm. But um, yeah, so so it's a very stigmatizing picture they give of the LGBTQ community. Um, is is definitely the biggest issue I have with them. I mean, there's some confusing things that they say about making people maybe think that they don't have to be gay. And, and it's, again, it's it's some of that, like, what do you really mean? Or what are you really saying kind of confusion? But um, I think that the, the biggest problem I have is that it's just deeply stigmatizing. They, they say, look, we're gay. And this is our story. And this is what gay people are like. 
and um those are their choices and and it's it's sad i have a lot of empathy for them because of what they experienced in their lives and the time that they grew up in and it's it's awful and it's sad i'm not trying to blame them for it yeah but those were their choices and their experiences and not reflective of the entire queer community right there's a lot of gay people who have very loving compassionate monogamous marriages and Mm -hmm. it's not this crazy wild sex party right it's the or or they're not hurting themselves they're they're actually living in unity together in a very peaceful joyous love-filled relationship and that's something Mm -hmm. that like you know when you can associate you know, well, all queer activity is as having to be this kind of lustful and passioned, like licentious act of no restraint. Like maybe that is what they engaged in. And maybe there's a lot of trauma built up in that too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from their own experiences. Uh, but that's, but to say like, this is what it means to be queer is not, it's not an accurate picture. I, I, I hear that's, I think that's what you're, you're saying too. Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great summary. And it's, it's very sad to me, um, the experiences that they've had and the way that they have so internalized that, that they believe that there's no other way to be gay. And that's just what it is. And so I reject all of what it means to be gay or to be homosexual or the gay lifestyle, which is a phrase they like a lot and use yeah. a lot. And it's a damaging message, particularly for kids. And they speak to youth all the time and they go to Adventist academies and it's, really awful <laughs> it's 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 damaging i mean it's, my heart breaks for the uh closeted kids in those schools who are hearing that message and thinking oh no you know like is this who i am like right. you know and i've had friends who have heard similar messages and just you know just like good christian christian kids especially like gay men right just good christian kids and they hear these messages and they're like am i a monster what do i'm gonna i'm gonna start using drugs i'm gonna have like, like one of the coming out ministries people talks about, like, I'm going to have sex with multiple strangers every day. Like, is this what's in my future? Like, no, (laughs) it's, it's, it's an awful, it's an awful message to give a teenager. Who's like, just trying to figure out who they are and and grow up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I would love for us to just like get into Romans one. I think that's a difficult passage for many people and maybe some other new Testament passages that are talking about homosexuality and are what people rely on to say, like, this is something that God is saying, no, like a a man should not marry a man. A woman should not marry a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's do, we'll do Romans, do Romans one. Um, Yeah. So the the first Corinthians six, nine and the first Timothy one 10, those kind of go together, but um, those are different vice lists that Paul gives, and there's some tricky translation and cultural issues in those um, in those texts. But Romans one is kind of distinct uh, in that you know it's in the New Testament. There's a lot more context for it than there are other texts like Leviticus 18, where it's more like on a list. You, you get a little bit more context in Romans one, so you kind of understand a little bit better what's going on and why Paul says what he says. So. Um, so a lot of people look at Romans one as kind of a smoking gun. You know, this is the real, like, um, this is how we really know what is, this is the clearest statement that we have. It's in the new Testament and, uh, it's, it's, it's Paul and we have the context and we know what was going on here. <clears throat> so let's go, let's go Romans. First of all, uh, what is the context of Romans one so that we can, um, understand it? what's going on so this is paul he hasn't been to rome but he's writing to the christians in rome the obviously rome is the capital of the entire roman empire it's the cultural and the power center for everything and there's already a group of christians there and there's the two groups there's the the gentiles you know the gentile romans and then you've got the uh, jewish christians and so Paul is writing in a way that addresses both of these groups in a way that's ultimately unifying. The way he does that is by first beginning by being divisive, which is kind of interesting. He starts talking to the Gentiles 
and he he speaks to them in the he speaks like in the third person almost like he's talking about them like that him and the jewish christians are like talking about these gentiles and um just how awful they are and these are a lot of typical um jewish criticisms of rome and of gentiles um very similar to something called the um book called the wisdom of solomon that speaks about the same kind of thing so he it's just kind of rip, riffing on them. And then in Romans 2, he like shows that this whole thing has been a setup. Paul really shows what he's been doing this whole time. He's been talking about these Gentiles and he flips the script on the Jewish Christians and switches to the second person. And he's like, now you have been judging the, Jew the Gentiles, you do the same things. And then he goes through kind of the list, the list of the, the the sins of the Jewish people. And the whole point of this is just to show that ultimately we're all in the same boat, Jews and Gentiles alike. We all have sinned and we all need a savior. And it culminates in, you know, Romans 3.28, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. So that's kind of the point of the whole thing. So that gives us some context, like that's what Paul is doing. In Romans chapter one, that's the whole point of the thing. That's going to come in handy here in a second. So um, I was listening to an Adventist scholar who was explaining why he believed Romans one was um, a condemnation of same-sex marriage or any kind of same-sex relationship or romantic or sexual relationship in any context. So he was explaining why he believed that was the case. And he said something really interesting that got me thinking. And it's, it's funny, you can be go over these verses again and again and again, and it takes a while sometimes for them to click. And this just this, this really made a click for me. Because here's what he said. He said that um, Paul is not condemning people based on their feelings. He said, you know, he's acknowledging the truth that I think most people are aware of now. And that is acknowledged by the seminary and by a lot of Adventist position statements that people don't choose to be gay. They don't choose to experience an attraction and a desire to be in relationship with people of the same gender. Like that's not something that people choose and that good Christian people can have that experience and it can be persistent and unchosen in their life, right? Which is what we call being gay or being bi or pansexual so he's kind of acknowledging that and he's saying paul is not teaching that it's wrong to have the feeling essentially paul's not saying it's wrong to to be gay or to just have these feelings of attraction and i just took that what he was saying and then i compared it with what paul was saying in romans one and i was just like that's not true and here's, mm. here's why, here's what Paul is saying. He's, he's saying, you Gentile Romans, you don't have the oracles of God. You don't have the Bible. You know, God didn't send the prophets to you. And this is something that is repeated throughout the book of Romans. Yeah. And yet he says, despite not having the scriptures, I'm paraphrasing here, you are without excuse still. Because you should have recognized through nature, through the things that have been made, he says, that there is a God, you know, the power of God, his Godhead, you should have recognized this, you know, he's not saying you should have intuited everything that's in the Bible, but you should have intuited that there's a creator and worshiped the creator, but you've worshiped, you've denied that knowledge that you have had. You've denied it. You've chosen ignorance and you've worshiped the creation rather than the creator. You haven't acknowledged God. And so in that choice, you have worshiped idols instead. You've made images of the things that were created, you know, the animals on the land and in the sea and of man. And you've made these images and you've worshiped them rather than worshiping God, which is a common critique that Jews made of Gentiles, and that's throughout the Old Testament as well. Um, it's, it's really important in the Old Testament um, argument. 
and like he's paraphrasing the wisdom of Solomon and he's paraphrasing the Old Testament saying, you've denied this knowledge you had of God and you've worshiped these idols instead. So you exchanged the knowledge you had in your head and that resulted in the behavior of worshiping idols. And then it says, as a result of this, because you worshiped idols, God gave you over to these impure desires, these sinful desires for this unnatural um, burning up. One of the one of the words literally means like burning up. So it's just like this consuming, destructive lust. Hmm. It's unnatural, consuming, destructive lust that that God has given you over to this desire, right? So the desire is there as a sign that, that God is, that's the sign of God giving them over to this desire that God, that's, they deny the knowledge of God. So they worshiped idols. So God gave them over to this desire. And then as a result of this desire, they engaged in these behaviors that were these unnatural, uh, filled with lust, sexual desire. And I go into detail in this in my book, but is just a common Roman way of saying essentially that these people have totally lost all self-control because they're engaging in this mutual same-sex behavior, which for them just meant loss of control, just meant that they'd thrown all propriety, all propriety out the window and they just totally lost control of their bodies and have been uh, uh, overcome by lust. That was what, that's how the Roman interpreted and understood that behavior, which mm. that I go into depth in my, in my book. Exactly. We probably don't have time to, to do that here, but, um, so just to clarify those, I think what I'm hearing is you're saying that they were worshiping idols. And in that, um, that it took them down this road of degradation to the point that they were just kind of very licentious and indiscriminate, uh, with their passion. Um, I don't know if that's, and that it's not particularly like, it's not the same thing as like two people who choose to love each other in, uh, in a marriage. Is that kind of. Right. So, um, yeah, so we got a couple different points here. One, like, yeah, what is being described? He's not using the kinds of language he ever uses to describe marriage. He uses four different words for lust, none of which are ever attached to marriage and two of which are never, I don't think he ever uses them even anywhere else. They're just like very strong, very, um, very negative connotation words for um, just like this burning and consuming lust. And again, when you think about where conservative churches were 50 years ago, in terms of who they thought LGBTQ people were, this is who they thought LGBTQ people were. So interpreting Romans one to apply to the homosexuals made so much sense to them because that's who they thought. And, and there was some ignorance there of not understanding. Um, but, but that fit who they thought they were. The, but we have to say like, what was Paul talking about in his day? This right. is Bible interpretation, right? Right. What was Paul talking about in his day? What was his moral reasoning? And what is the question that we have in our day? And what are we trying to get answered? Do those questions match up or what is the relevance of those questions? And um, when you see what Paul is describing and you try to apply that to a question of should people of the same gender be supported in their marriages, should they receive the support they're asking for from the Adventist church? Um, it, it's, it's difficult to know how to apply. And when you look at the, the full context of it, it's even more difficult to know how to apply it because Paul is not actually describing people who have a desire that's um, something that comes without guilt, right? The desire that Paul is describing is itself a sign of the judgment of God. He's not describing, you know, people who for no fault of their own, just have a temptation. It's not, he doesn't even use the word temptation. You know, this is not what he's describing. He's describing people who have a desire that itself is a sign of the judgment of God. And the reason they have that desire is because they worshiped idols. Now, we like to make a metaphor out of idol worship, you know, because it's not like a thing really in Christian churches today and say, well, an idol is anything that you put before God. And so 
you know, you could say, and I've heard people say like, well, you know, maybe that's just what Paul was talking about. But remember the context. This is the Roman Gentiles that the Jewish people are looking on them and judging them. They're not judging them for putting something before God because obviously Jewish people would do that too. You know, this isn't like a metaphorical, though they were actually talking about actual idols, (laughs) that he's specific human beings 2000 years ago that paul was describing these specific people that paul was describing who actually worshiped literal idols and um it gets very frustrating to me when you want to kind of spiritualize or make a metaphor out of part of this and then take this other part super literal like it's just not a consistent way of interpreting the text no paul was saying there's these very specific people who actually worship idols who because of the actual worship of actual idols and a rejection of god as their creator are given these desires and these desires inevitably lead to these behaviors and then after that the rest of the chapter just leads to all kinds of sinful behaviors right it's just like a total breakdown and that's what's being described and it's very difficult for me as a bisexual person to see myself in that Mm. i'm not i'm far 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 from perfect and i've struggled in many areas of my life but idolatry is not one of them it's just not you know so many of us growing in the christian up in the christian church we know we're not perfect but we're seeking god you know we're not we're not worshiping we're not worshiping idols yeah and so how does that apply to us? It's very difficult because what Paul is describing is, is not something that fits with us. Like the desires are a result of worshiping idols and the desires are acted on. There's no description in this that Paul has of people who have the des- a desire that they resist. Mm. You know, that's not, that's not being described in what Paul's describing. Right. So this, this statement that Paul is not condemning people for the desires, but for the behavior doesn't actually make sense with what Paul is saying. For what Paul is describing, which makes you wonder, maybe we're trying to force a text onto this question that we have about LGBT people that doesn't actually have relevance to them, because yeah. we're looking so hard for an answer to our question that we want a clear, thus saith the Lord, and we want a clear yes or a clear no, and so we're looking for that, but maybe we haven't found it here like we think we have, yeah, and um, that's that's what I that's what I think I think this text has relevance, but not, not to same-sex marriage. It has relevance in our lives, surely, but not to this particular question, maybe to other questions. That's so key. And it's so interesting because, you know, you're talking about like Paul is trying to paint a picture of like just this debauchery that's happening in all areas of their morality and how they treat each other and how they treat themselves and, and kind of like a whole laundry list of immorality. And that looks like that's such a different picture than, you know, two people who say, I'm going to selflessly love this other person for the rest of my life and care for them financially and in sickness and in health and make a covenant. And I think that that is like one of the questions I, I wrestle with definitely because there are so many laws in the Bible that make moral sense to me, right? Even the Sabbath, you know, this idea of rest, and this idea that, you know, employers cannot work their employees to death, that even the servants have a right to rest one day a week and, and it's mandated by God, right? Like but I, I can see the morality of even something in like rest, but like adultery and betrayal and bearing false witness of murder. Like I see, I, I, I can make sense of it. It makes sense to me because it's like, of course, you know, treating other human beings well, um, and what does it mean to bear the image of God, you know, and, and, and sharing a witness of who he is to the world also implies that I'm not, you know, using his name in vain in the sense where I I'm saying I'm going about God's mission, but I'm giving a false representation of what that really is through my actions. Like there are so many things that we can, that make sense to me, but to forbid to people who love each other from entering into a mutually consensual relationship. There's so many things that God has allowed, you know, um, in the Old Testament that may not have been his ideal or his first choice, like polygamy, but because there was consent, you know, um, Sarah 
uh, uh, gay, you know, she, she, the one who was in lesser power in that relationship, this is something that she wanted. She wanted uh, 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 another party in their marriage for the purpose of childbearing. Same thing with Rachel and Leah. And there's this consensual aspect and re- mutual respect that's happening that one can wonder about Hagar's consent, however. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is very valid. And the handmaids, you know, we have the whole handmaid's tale series dedicated to the experience of Bila and Zilpa, right? So like, like, but like, so in that sense, correct. Uh, but even there, there's an allowance for something that even by today's standards, we would have questions about the morality of that, right? And to, but, but to see two people who love each other and they're the same gender, like I can't make sense of the immorality of that. I think that that's the part that has a lot of people questioning, including myself, like, God, how is this immoral other than just, you know, this is how it is. And I don't think that that's how, who God is. And maybe that depends on how you view him. If God is authoritarian, then yeah, this is just what it is. Right. But if God is a God who makes, who has reason and is purposeful and like considerate, like then it doesn't make sense. And so if the law is reflection of the character of God. Then in what way does this particular law reflect the character of God? Yes, I think is what you're getting at. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's a great point that you made in Romans 1. You know, we're, we're pointing out this, it's, it's a, you know, we're talking about people who have completely fallen into a certain, you know, uh, just a hole of immorality, right? Uh, but that does that's not the same as two people who, pay their taxes are good to their neighbors, you know, have adopted a child and want to live together in love. Like that's a completely different story. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of like to separate the questions out of like, um, is there a red light in the Bible and is there a green light in the Bible? And I think when we're looking at Romans one, we're asking, is this a red light? And so, you know, is this something that answers our question with a clear no? You know, our question being, should we support same-sex marriage? Uh, and I just, so I think that the answer is like a double negative, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like, like this is not a, this, this is not a red light, you know, for, for us. So, um, and then I think the whole other question needs to be answered is like, well, how do you see there being a green light then? And where does that come from? And that's, I think a whole separate question and a whole separate discussion that I also um, talk about um, hmm. in depth in my in my book. So I guess, well, I, I guess you're just going to have to read the book. <laughs> it, <it's laughs> Support the so Kickstarter much. and read the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, and maybe we can leave on that note. And I, I wish, I mean, there's so many more things that we can get into. Um, you know, hopefully we'll be having a Q&A in the near future where people can ask more questions. Cause I mean, we, we could go on for a few more hours, I'm sure having these discussions and it, it merits it. You know, we, we need, we're so deficient in this education that we need hours and hours and hours of content to be able to catch up, uh, to be able to be really educated as a part of that conversation. So these are just a few tidbits, please go get the book. Um, but maybe you can leave us with an example of like, is there a green light in the Bible and how have you made any sense of there being a green light. <laughs> um, I, it, it is one of those things that's a little bit harder to um, to say really briefly, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Matthew 22, 36 to 40 a little bit, um, where Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And the way that Christians talk sometimes today, I think if they were answered, asked that question, their answer would be like, what do you mean the greatest? They're just all true. You know, like, how do you say the greatest? They're all true. They're all, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and your strength, quoting Deuteronomy six. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus, I think 19. So Jesus picked what he believed was the most important. And then he went on to say something incredibly important, which was on this hangs all the law and the prophets. So what he's saying is, and there's a lot more to say than this, but I think by way of introduction, what he's saying is the anchor point, 
the thing on which everything else hangs is this idea of loving God wholeheartedly, loving our creator, which is also what Paul was talking about in Romans 1, wholeheartedly, and therefore also loving the creation wholeheartedly, um, you know, loving one another. And it's interesting to me, I think one of the ways that we struggle um, is with feeling uncomfortable, like that this gives so much license, like, oh, now I can just justify anything by saying it's loving. Aren't there limits to love? And I think if you take Jesus's words seriously, you have to say, no, there aren't limits to love. There's love and there's sin. And the nature of sin is that it is incompatible with love. That's what it means when it says mm. that on this principle of love hangs all the law and the prophets. You know, it also says that um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, these laws were created for a good to help us see and understand what it means to love. The Sabbath was made for our good. I think all the law, I think you could say that marriage was created for our good. And so um, it is not always easy to understand what that means. But the mistake that we often make <clears throat> is that we look at it backwards. We take the law and the rule and we make that kind of the lens and the limiting factor through which we see love. So love is limited and restrained by our rules. And that is not, that's, that's getting the whole thing backwards. Love, love and compassion and kindness and justice, all these most important themes of scripture and characteristics of God. This is the lens through which we should judge everything else. And you know, I give various examples in the Bible of where you see this in action and where you see even changes and shifts and how, how do you, how do you do that? And the question of how you do that is not a simple and easy one. And it's not just a, oh, this feels good to me. So I'm going to do it. it. It's, it's not that either. That's, that's a caricature of what it means to pursue love and justice for all people. But that is the goal. Uh, that is the goal, and that's the heart of Christianity, and that is the reflection of what the character of God is. Mm -hmm. And so, I think expanding on that and understanding that, and understanding some of the more the moral principles of marriage, is what um, is is kind of part of the picture of of how I explain some of those things. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like I want to bring you on. We're going to do a part two to this conversation at some point because. I want to get into your story too. And I want to uh, want people to like really have an encounter with a person, right. And the journey of what that was like for you, because I think we lack representation. You know, I was talking to your friend the other day, like, you know, we, we, women have spoken up in the Adventist church and it has forced us to reconcile uh, doctrine because of it. You know, women have women have voiced their opinion and their experience and how certain theology has harmed them and their self-image. And we don't hear that voice from the LGBTQ community. And because we don't hear it, whether it's from fear uh, or the ways that it's been silenced and, and repressed, um, you know, that we don't begin to think critically because we don't hear uh, hmm. the, the voice of LGBTQ people in our church. And so I do still want to make space for you to tell your story. And, and I, and I'm sad that we, in some ways that we need to knock down some of these theological issues. And, and even if somebody walks away and they're like, I don't really agree with this, but to understand that somebody can come to this conclusion based on the Bible and that there is room enough in the scripture for there to be an affirming theology. And if we can make room for that first, um, and, and like, let's make room for that. And then we can also, um, you know, just maybe agree to disagree at some point, uh, but make room for those types of theological debates and also to begin to affirm the journey of what LGBTQ experiences are in this church. And so I do want to hear your story and I do think our audience will be benefited by that. But I know we've been here for like two and a half hours already. So <laughs> uh, is there anything that you want to leave our audience with? because we've covered a lot, 
but I always want to give the last word to my guest because, you know, I, I want you to feel like, you know, you've really shared at least for this part of the journey, um, some things that were important, but what are some last words that you'd leave with our audience today? For a long time, I avoided really studying this issue in any depth and I was uh, hesitant to do so. And I always felt like I should, and it was something I should get around to. And I always intended to get around to it, but I let that good intention, I think, um, make me feel satisfied enough that I didn't actually go do it. And it's really something I should have done long, long before I did. And I just want to say like, this is something that we do need to do. We need to really study the Bible on this more seriously than we have. And that I, I, um, I don't believe the Adventist church has adequately studied this. And I don't know that institutionally the church is even capable of doing it because if you take the wrong side, you lose your job. So we have to do it as Adventist people. You know, yeah. the institution is making it in, impossible to do it institutionally, but the institution isn't the church and the church is the people and so it's our responsibility but it's not just like a negative responsibility it's something that god has for us and there is a blessing there for us to do that and uh, i think it's just a high time that we engaged in the conversation and that we pushed it and moved it forward yeah thanks so much for joining us today there's still so much to unpack please go get uh alicia's book um the Bible and LGBTQ Adventists. Do you have any other recommendations? And if you don't have it off the top of your head, you can always email me later, but recommendations of books that people should maybe start getting into if they want to begin to increase their education. Yeah. Um, I think that Justin Lee's book Torn is a good place um, to start. It's super accessible, easy reading. Um, and along the similar lines, Austin Hartke's book, Transforming, that talks specifically about um, transgender folks is a really great book. Um, James Brownson's book, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, is a bit more uh, scholarly. It's a great book. Uh, Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian, uh, a little bit more in between Justin Lee's and Brownson's book. It's, it's more scholarly, but also accessible. Um, Karen Lee has a book. The Bible and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationship that's just been out recently and it really makes some good new points, which is not always easy to do in a conversation that people have been having for a while. That one's really, um, really good. And um, if you really want to get into really deep scholarly stuff about tran uh, transgender and intersex folks, um, Sex Difference in Christian Theology by um, Megan DeFranza is a really good one as well. Wow. Yeah. All right, congratulations, everybody who made it to the end of today's episode. I hope that you continue to write in your thoughts, your comments, your critiques, uh, anything that you want to say about this episode. We're going to bring some of those questions that you might have or concerns that you might have into our Q&A coming up in a couple weeks. So please stay tuned to our Instagram to get more information about when that's going to be because we want this to be a conversation starter. I'm so glad that you were listening in this week. Uh, you can follow our guest today at Pastor Alicia Johnston on Instagram. You can follow me at Kendra Arsenault with next. Make sure to get the copy of her book, The Bible and LGBTQ Adventist, through her Kickstarter campaign and is listed in the link below. And I'm so glad you guys have been listening through and I will see you next week. <laughs>